Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This week's episode of Your Torah is dedicated to the memory of Baruch Ben Zev. My name is Anne Gordon, and I have spent the greater part of my adult years learning and teaching Torah Sheba Alpeh, including Mishnah, Gemara, and Halacha in both Israel and America. My first somewhat systematic study of Mishnah began in the brief slot between Mincha and Mariv when I was an undergrad more than 25 years ago, and a bunch of us tried to use the time that would otherwise have gone to waste wisely. There are Mishnayot that I remember to this day from that setting, even when I have learned them since as well. And that mode of learning Mishnah in the snippets of time was a practice of mine for a long time. I should note also that when I was once well, often frustrated that to learn anything well, you need to already know everything. Rabbi Moshe Khan, Talmud teacher of women par excellence, then at Stern College and Drisha Institute, told me, learn Mishnah with Kahati's commentary. That's the way to get Bikiyut, the kind of general overview that amounts to expertise, at least as a foundation for learning more. As you listen to this podcast, it is my hope, and likely that of all of those involved in this project, that you too attain some measure of that broad perspective that comes from exposure to the range of details in Jewish texts. Our study today is the short tractate of Chala. It's only three chapters long. Chala is one of those quintessentially Jewish items more Jewish, perhaps, even than the proverbial bagels and locks that has come to epitomize a certain kind of so-called cultural Jew. The braided loaf of bread graces so many tables each Shabbat and is the Jewish bread in the same way that a baguette is French. I hear tell that there's been a decline in baguette culture. Naan is Indian. Pita is Middle Eastern. Hot cross buns may represent the U.K., and cornbread is decidedly American. The Jewish traditional bread emerged from the lesser known, in this day and age, mitzvah of challah, the separation of a portion of bread that was to be given to the kohanim, the priests, in the temple. In sync with other tithings that are discussed in the tractates of Seder Zraim, the notion that no matter the nature of our food, we separate some off, and dedicate it to God or to those who serve him in the temple is nearly lost in this day and age. We do, however, keep the Torah mitzvah under certain parameters, as we'll discuss. We separate off a portion of dough. The fact that the kohanim are not available in the temple to receive it does not diminish the training to give or to share that this mitzvah imparts. Literally, challah, refers to the bread offering. The mitzvah is found in the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. When you eat of the bread of the land, you shall offer up an offering to God. Of the first of your dough, you shall offer up a loaf. The tractate elaborates on every aspect of the mitzvah, as you would expect, delving into the details of halacha. 
It opens with the grains that obligate their baker in the taking of challah. Of course, that's the five species that are considered grain, the same ones that get the blessing of hamotzi, not incidentally. For if bread is the staff of life, this is the defining moment of what makes bread. So, wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye. Not for the gluten-free among us, unfortunately. The Mishnayot go on to explain the shiur, the measurement that brings about the obligation of challah, and addresses the fact that these same grains are chametz, the leavened product, also known as bread, that is prohibited on Pesach. And now we get into the nitty-gritty of what makes dough. That is, the grain alone is not enough to result in the mitzvah of challah, but when the flowers of these grains mix with water, if it happens by accident, then there's a dispute between Hillel and Shammai whether challah must be taken. Dough is considered edible if shepherds were willing to partake. Apparently, as they roamed the fields, they weren't considered the pickiest pallets. Next, who is obligated in the taking of challah? And at what point in the bread crafting process? When the women brought their doughs to the baker, presumably for the use of his oven, and if the amount of flour they have used is insufficient, they are not obligated in challah. I'd like to note that the women are explicitly mentioned in this Mishnah. They were clearly the expected bakers of challah, and just as clearly not expected to be the town baker. The mitzvah of challah is only a Torah requirement in the land of Israel, and it carries with it a Torah prohibition as well. The parameters of what constitutes the land of Israel for the purpose of challah show up in these Mishnayot as well. And any non-Kohen who ate challah, that is the portion that is removed from the baked bread, incurs a death penalty, and also a penalty of chomesh, paying a fifth, just as with truma. This giving of gifts to the holy is very serious business. And here we come to our sample Mishnah. I've chosen one that may surprise in the range of what permits and what does not. Smack in the middle of our short tractate, Perak Bet, Mishnah Gimel, 2, 3. Ha'isha yoshevet v'kotze chalata aruma, mipnei shehi yuchola l'chasot atzma. A woman may sit and separate her chala, making the blessing, while naked, since she has the ability to cover herself, that is, by crossing her legs. Aval lo ha'ish, but a man may not do so. Beginning with the erstwhile issues of tzniut, modesty, we see that there is no shame in personal nakedness, as it were, when it comes to performing mitzvot. There are always boundaries, and the inherently more modest physique of a woman means that she has slightly more leeway in her positioning when taking challah than a man would. I do not mean to suggest that one should bake bread unclothed, but the Mishnah is fleshing out, sorry, the outlying parameters of what is acceptable. Mi she'eno yachol sot isato betahara, yasena kabin. One who cannot knead one's dough in purity, in a state of having gone to the mikvah, redeeming oneself from any state of impurity, then one should make smaller portions in separate kabin. A kav is a specific unit of volume, and the idea is that it is less than the minimum amount required for taking challah. So then one is perhaps making bread to eat, but not 
incurring the obligation of taking challah in a state of impurity. From elsewhere, notably Masachet Nida, and also the rest of Seder Taharot, we know that one who is impure can render other items impure. And if the gift of challah to the Kohen must be pure, then how can one bake bread while impure? This is the crux of the Machloket, the dispute between Rabbi Akiva and the Tanakama, the original unnamed voice in the Mishnah. May one bake bread that is obligated in the taking of challah, when the challah itself may then not be eaten, but tahara, in purity. V'Rabbi Akiva Omer, Yasena betum'ah, ba'al yasena kabim. Ukeshem shehu kore letohora, kachu kore letme'ah. Rabbi Akiva says, let one make the challah in the state of impurity, rather than make it in separate kabim, in these separate smaller amounts. Because just as one designates challah as in the state of purity, one may designate that which is impure. Rabbi Kiva is explaining that when one designates something that is impure as chala, it is still designated as chala. But if you separate it out, the smaller amounts of kabim, then you don't even have the name chala as an eligible labeling of this portion. The rules and regulations of ritual purity and impurity are about as foreign to our contemporary way of life as anything else, perhaps even more than the offerings and tithings of this tractate and the others in Zra'im. But back in the day, they played a huge role in the decision-making process of what to do, how to live, even of how to bake one's bread. Let me interject a personal comment on this idea of using a smaller quantity of dough, the kabim, so as not to be obligated in challah. For the most part, I think we are trained to want to do mitzvot, so the loophole that enables one who is impure to get out of the mitzvah, and as an ideal way to handle the mitzvah, is fascinating. I find it particularly intriguing, perhaps even gratifying, as I am recently in possession of a bread maker. I've been using it to make the dough for challah and then shaping the loaves myself. And I've been feeling bad, even abashed, that the bread maker doesn't use enough flour to be obligated in taking challah. Never mind that it's drabanan, and even just for burning, not to give people to eat. It's not enough, and I'm not doing that mitzvah. Now, impurity isn't the issue, of course, and maybe my excuse for not taking challah isn't quite as laudable as one that's found in the Mishnah. But I feel a bit better nonetheless. And one day, when I'm more enterprising, please God, I'll make large amounts of dough just for the sake of the mitzvah of taking challah, of course. Back to the topics addressed. What happens if the flour is owned by a non-Jew? What is a convert's obligation in taking challah? What happens if olives are inadvertently mixed into the dough? All of these cases are raised in these Mishnayot and lead me to observe, as learning Mishnah invariably reminds me, that Rabbi Khan was exactly right. Each tractate carries within it that microcosm of exposure to so much more in terms of that general knowledge that is foundational in knowing Torah. The last two Mishnayot present cases of challah and other offerings that were not accepted, 
whether because of the identity of the person who brings them or the location from where they came. These gifts of our food to God are not accepted any which way, no matter our good intentions. It's another case of God being in the details where the halachot matter. Lastly, it has become a common practice in certain circles for women to pray for people's health, well-being, income, family status, and so on, when baking challah and setting aside the required amount for burning. Some solicit names for those to pray over at this time. Another growing practice is for a number of women, sometimes quite a lot, to congregate for a challah bake, not for the sake of baking bread, as much as for the sake of that challah that is separated. In my day, I have wondered at this practice, as if there were a need to make a de'oraita commandment, a Torah mitzvah, more important, as it were. Of late, however, I take note of the sense of community that this group activity engenders, and observe that any assist to connecting to God in prayer is valuable. That said, I hope the learning of Masachet Chala serves to deepen our appreciation of the mitzvah and the thousands of years during which it has been observed, with no need to add to its importance. Thank you. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.